Welcome back to Coach and Kern and Podcast Network. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here by my co-hosts, Mark Wiley and Will George. Uh, Mark Wiley, former pitching coordinator for the Colorado Rockies. Will George, current scout for the Rockies. We're here with our, our usual midweek show, episode 56 in total. This is a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. Their fifth installment of the show. It's been great, well received by our audience. A deep dive into pitching and a deep dive into making our audience, uh, creating a better baseball IQ for our audience. Guys, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. And we have a special guest today. I'm going to let uh, Mark, you introduce our special guest today and then get into the, the interview. Thanks, Dave. Uh, my Our guest today is going to be Bob Apodaca. Bob's been a major league pitching coach for a long time. Um, he's been in the game for almost as long as I have. Uh, we've been friends for years. Uh, we competed against each other in college. Um, it's uh, We have a lot of overlapping friends, and uh, we're really glad to have him on. You know, Bob, when he – Bob was in high school. Bob was a third baseman. He didn't become a pitcher until he went to Cerritos Junior College. Um, from there, he went to Cal State University at Los Angeles, which is not UCLA. It's Cal State uh, at Los Angeles. Uh, that's where we played against each other. He was the MVP at the school in 71 – he signed in 1971, and if I have this right, Bob was a non-drafted free agent. Um, he dominated the minor leagues in, for three years. He had a 24-11 record, and he was called up to the Mets. And uh, his first win uh, in the big leagues was against Hall of Famer Bob Gibson. In uh, 1975, he had a great year out of the bullpen with the Mets, 13 saves and a 1.49 earn run average unheard of in today's game, uh, stayed with the Mets until he had an elbow injury in 1978. He fought back, tried to come back several times, but finally retired and became a coach in 1981. He was uh, at multiple levels uh, for years with the Mets and the minor leagues where he teamed up with uh, Clint Hurdle, many stops along the way. Um, he was his manager and his friend, and uh, it carried on, and they even, even joined each other in the big leagues. Uh, he was coach of the year in 1987 in the Sally League. Um, he was a pitching coach for the New York Mets from 96 to 99, Milwaukee Brewers 2000-2001, and the Colorado Rockies 2003 to 2012, but that's where he joined Clint Hurdle, um, and they went to the World Series against Boston in 2007. Um, after that, in 2012, he became a special assistant to the general manager of the Colorado Rockies, then a pitching coordinator for four years, and then became a special assistant to minor league operations uh, for the Rockies up until his retirement. Um, I was playing a lot of golf, and I, and I understand he had to take, a, take some time off from his golf. Is that right, Bob, to play, to do this? Oh, that's, yeah, yeah. Monday, Wednesday, Friday are my days to get out of the house and uh, enjoy the weather here in um, eastern Washington. And uh, I'm doing that. Uh, retirement it is great. I, I don't miss the day-to-day -day operations of baseball. I do miss the relationships that uh, you build over 
your many years in baseball with you, with Will, with Clint, with so many countless people that you come into contact with, with players. Um, those are the things you miss and that you always take with you. Well, you're, you're traveling down to Florida next week to go to a, a special event, aren't you? Yes, yes. Um, next week I'm going to uh, Port St. Lucie where the Mets train, and I lived there for 30 years. And uh, Bobby Floyd, uh, who's been with the Met organization, I believe, 37 years, and uh, is retiring, and it's also his 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, I believe this uh, weekend he is getting a uh, special something special from the New York Mets for 37 years uh, in the organization. So it's a multi-reason trip, but it, it is to see friends. And then I'm also taking my golf clubs uh, uh, as an afterthought. Of course you are. <laughs> awesome. Hey, the, uh, you know, Bob, what we're doing, and I talked to you before the show, um, we're trying to bring light on, you know, some old school ideas, uh, people who have vast experience that can pass it on to our young listeners and, and to coaches and parents and people that make an impact on their, on their players or their children's life. And we want to try to help them make the best impact, the most common sense impact to use the name of our show. Um, you know, we talk a lot about feel and that, you know, people don't seem to be concerned as much about feel. And I'm going to have Will read some comments against about Matt Scherzer. Matt Scherzer's kind of, he's one of the premier pitchers in all of baseball. Uh, he's a little old school and uh, he makes some comments about feel. I'll have Will read that. Then we'll delve into that. Yeah. I got this uh, the other day from Roy Smith, who was one of our guests, a uh, very good friend of mine, former pitcher and, uh, it's a quote from Max Scherzer. Uh, I don't chase induced vertical break. I chase slot and feel. After starts, do I look at movement? Sure. But I don't put as much stock into it. It's just checking the temperature, but it doesn't tell you the weather. I'd rather have a worse changeup, but have more feel and execution with it. Then it's a better changeup. That's one of the things that are wrong. That's one of the things that are uh, one of the things that are wrong in all this analytics stuff that we're doing. So much of it is feel and what my eyes see, and if I'm generating swings and misses or not. There's so much more to that what the hitter is seeing and how they are reacting, and that's what the game is. Everyone is chasing down stuff like spin rate, velocity, shape. There are other things to chase that are far more important. And that's from Max Scherzer, who's the one of the last horses left in the game that takes the ball every fifth day and goes deep and competes his butt off. So, yeah, and that you know, and that goes back. And you were a pitching coach like I was for many years, Bob. And uh, you know, what's your you know, how do you think you should learn feel? How do you think young players? Uh, can understand what Matt Scherzer says? Well, first of all, feel is not taught. Feel is innate. Feel is the ability to go out and do an activity or a, a set of movements over and over again 
without without bringing the words mechanics into the equation. Um, the athlete has to absolutely feel free from worrying about mechanics or anything like that. That's where a teacher and the student uh, need that 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 space and time of being alone without distractions, having the athlete do an activity, whether it's pitching to a catcher, going through his delivery, trying to hit a specific target, and then ask impertinent questions like, what did that feel like when he did hit the target? Um, wh- what did you sense yourself doing? Um, so this is something that you acquire. It's not something I can teach you. Uh, obviously, if you're more at the more athletic um, athlete is going to be able to harness this innate uh, ability to garner feel, then maybe the, the, the pitcher that does not is not quite as athletic. So it has a lot to do with your athleticism, has a lot to do with intelligence. And I don't mean IQ. I just mean baseball intelligence, the ability to feel what your body is doing, the ability to control your body and sense what it is doing during the course of your movements. You're able to do that with your body and train it by repetition you're able to fix yourself when something goes awry because you know what your body is doing and what causes what to happen. So um, the, the term feel, and obviously Matt Scherzer is a great example. Uh, Greg Maddox was another example. I remember talking with him in the outfield. He said, when I feel right, I can hit any target at any time with all of my pitches. He didn't say when my mechanics are right. He said, I feel right. I can make any pitch at any time. So this is something that over the course of time and practice and repetition and and clearing your mind from uh, all these things about mechanics. We overdo the word mechanics. Obviously, there's a place and time to talk about delivery and mechanics. But I think the, the you have to bring the athlete out of the picture before you start incorporating uh, the words mechanics. Well, go ahead. Yeah, those those are great, such great points, Bob. We talk on here, and we've had a lot of other former pitchers, pitching coaches, guys, um, like one of the things, you know, that I felt blessed with signing with the Orioles is they taught us to be our own best pitching coach and to develop that feel when things are right. And like, I, I, I didn't need a track man or a, something to tell me I just made a good pitch when you stay behind the ball and it feels right and the ball jumps out of your hand or you spin a good breaking ball and it has great depth to it late in the strike zone. That, those were the things that were being taught that are not being taught now. Um, all those foundation things that lead to quality pitches and command are not being taught because they sit with an iPad and they look at spin rate, velocity, and pitch shape. That's the finished product. The finished right. product is going to be great, just like Greg Maddox said. When he feels right, 
it's going to be a good pitch. Yes. Mark, I mean, we, we can remember, we're, we're, we're a throwback. In, in, did you have a pitching coach at uh, Cal Poly Pomona? No, other than no. Salinas. I had none in yeah. pro ball. I had no pro, none in pro ball in the minor leagues. No. Absolutely no. not. And I think that's why – I think that's why we were ahead of the curve as far as that uh, we're concerned as far as that, because we had to take care of ourselves. We had to figure out a way to do this, to throw this ball in this location with this pitch. And when when it happened, we made adjustments. We made adjustments in our brain. We didn't make mechanical adjustments. We did it in our brain. And because we did it in our brain, we inadvertently made mechanical adjustments without thinking mechanics. Right. And I think that's where we get overloaded is that we, we, we have the pitcher uh, where his mind is distracted when he's making a pitch at a critical time instead of focusing on the most important thing as far as hitting the target with this particular pitch, he ceases to be an athlete. And well, I think you have to practice to be an athlete. Well, I think that, you know, pitching coaches today in the minor leagues, you know, they're saddled sometimes with, you know, so much analytical stuff to evaluate every day. And, uh, you know, it it takes away from the time that – and they have more pitchers to deal with, (laughs) too. It takes more time to to wade through all of it. And I I know I I used to have roving pitching coaches in the minor leagues, and I had early win and freaking people like that that uh, Ray Berry's guys who had vast, vast experience at the major league level, even Hall of Famers, but they would come through. They they didn't have time to be talking about mechanics. They they tried to make you perform the best you could at the time. And that's kind of why I came up with the balance, rhythm, and timing, because I figured the balance, rhythm, and timing uh, gave you the idea uh, of what feel is. You know, there's no mechanics in balance, rhythm, and timing. And when we do break break down mechanics in today's world, when I'm teaching it and the guys with the Rockies are teaching it, we try to incorporate the balance, rhythm, and timing and the uniqueness of every guy. You can't make a cookie cutter, as Will says. You know, yeah, you, you, in order to get feel, you have to be an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. An athlete. Balance, rhythm, and timing is athletic movement. It's not – mechanical robot movements where you stop and pause at balance and you got to have your glove here. You got to do this. Like I, you know, as an evaluator, I love to watch guys that have flowing deliveries where you see the athleticism and the balance rhythm and timing. That's where you go. This guy's got a chance to be good. He's going to throw strikes. He's going to maximize his stuff. Those are so much more important than all the minutiae that we chase we chase down now. Well, um, you know, it's funny. My second year, this is my second year as a big league pitching coach. And uh, a pitching coach who's, you know, uh, you would know the name, I won't mention him. He, he mentioned me one time he was a pitching coach for a te- one of my opponents. And we were, you know, pitching coaches always swap stuff. And we were talking and he says, I'm big on the front side, Mark, where the glove is, you know? And I go, really? And I go, Funny, I'd never even thought about that. And he said, really? You know, it's very important. And he went on telling me all the reasons it was important. So I went over to my pitching staff. My pitch, my starters were pretty good. We were one of the better starting teams in the American League. Um, 
and uh, and we had we had a, a all star closer and and I got them together and I said, hey, uh, what do you do with your glove and your delivery? And not <laughs> one of them knew what he did, not yeah. one of them, because they incorporated it into their rhythm and they all had firm front sides. Don't get me wrong; they all had different glove positions, but the glove positions held for a certain period of time. But it was all within their own balance, rhythm, and timing, and so. Mm-hmm. I, 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 that was one of my first insights on somebody focusing on one thing that you could get, you could get a pitcher worrying about that. Then he doesn't get anybody else out, you know? So there's a point to understand it, but it's all within your own balance, rhythm and timing. You know, I, I think there's a place in time for these analytics, but I think the analytics is more for the teacher, uh, to see where, uh, you can see breakdowns in, in a person's delivery. But I, I think if we start um, teaching this with, now obviously these, these young players are being indoctrinated at the high school and college level. So they're, they're way ahead of us as far as knowledge of, of analytics. But I would, I, wouldn't, I would be very hesitant to bring it into a conversation when you're working one-on-one whether it's a starter side session or you're doing some touch and feel with with a with a relief pitcher, I would have the knowledge of what information I'm getting, but I would not. That would not be the topic of discussion. I would want to find out what athletically is he doing that's preventing him from doing doing it the way he wants to do it. And I think if you can find solutions athletically, rhythmically balance, uh, timing, if, if we can solve our issues with, like Mark said, how we incorporate it with the Rockies organization, with balance, rhythm, and timing, we, if we can accomplish those steps, you would be amazed at how, how few breakdowns of the delivery are going to happen. Most breakdowns of a delivery mechanically are done because we neglect those three key elements that an athlete accomplishes. And so why do those happen? Because we start thinking of an outcome instead of a process. We do the process. When Scherzer completes his process of making a pitch and it comes down to his feel, he's happy with the outcome. Same thing with Greg Maddox. When he accomplishes his process, the outcome happens. But if we put the outcome first, we're going to neglect on how you want to, how you want to execute that pitch. So I think I think the all this information is well and good if we can keep it in a rightful place. Um, they, that's, that's, those are great points. And I'm glad we had a chance to ask that question to you. Um, you know, another question that I have for you is that, you know, for somebody that lost their playing career due to injury, um, you know, what advice would you give young pitchers about staying healthy? Um, well, it, you know, it, it, it really depends on, obviously, if we're talking about high school athletes or even college athletes. Uh, maybe they play multiple sports, especially the high school athlete. He might be a multiple, multiple sport guy. So he has to he has to prepare so much more than the one sport athlete. 
if we're talking about a baseball player in high school or college or even professional ball, you have to get your body into uh, into that pitcher's shape that requires lots of time, lots of time. The Rockies have an off-season throwing program that is second to none, and uh, you are highly responsible for to bringing that into fold. And they they start a throwing program uh, for the minor leaguer when they report in March, and they start in um, in December, January, or around that time. But in the meantime, they're getting their body, their core, their legs. They're getting their body, preparing their body to get into that throwing phase of of the offseason program. And then you can't just pick up a baseball and just jump on the mound. You have to you have to very uh, diligently have a plan on this is what I'm going to do this week, which leads to this week, which leads to this week. You're building and building and building that throwing athlete. Uh, if you were a quarterback in the NFL, they don't just wait until training camp and they start winging the ball all over the field. No, they're, I guarantee you they're getting their body in shape to be able to throw the football. Same thing with the baseball. That that uh, high school, you have to be able to regiment your throwing program, whether it's short toss, which goes into long, eventually into long toss, which goes into if you want to do flat ground, which leads into bullpens. These are all stages that you have to accomplish to get those tiny muscle fibers in the shoulder and even those larger muscle groups getting used to the stress of throwing a baseball. And then at the same time, incorporating your unique delivery on how you throw the baseball. So it all still comes under the umbrella of feeling how you want to deliver the baseball to, <clears throat> to a specific target. And always a tar- target in mind. Whether it's long toss, you still want a target that you want to throw to. Short toss, you have a target. But all the same time, you are regimenting yourself. So it is imperative that that that, that athlete has to realize that this is a process that he has to train his body into. For me to, to lose uh, years of, of playing time, this is back in the 70s, Mark, and you pitched in the 70s as well as I did. And we... I, I wish I had taken the page out of Tom Seaver because he was that that original guy that I ever came into contact with that trained his body in the off season to get ready to spring training. Yeah, I did some weightlifting and things, but I did not do enough throwing program in the off season living in New York. And then when I went to Florida, that's that's when I really started delving into the throwing aspect of of, of the game. So. I was way, way behind. I should have prepared much earlier than that. And I think science has proven it, um, that over the course of the baseball tenure now, athletes don't get out of shape. They stay in shape. Maybe not in season shape, but they stay in shape even over the off season because they know this is the only body that they're going to get. 
and they take, they covet their arm, they covet their body, and this is why uh, it takes uh, it takes time to to be able to be ready to face opposition. You know, it's funny you were talking about throwing at targets. You know, I remember I had a roving minor league pitching coach when I was with the Twins. When I after I signed, His name was Ray Berries, and he was a very famous pitching coach in the big leagues, really a great guy. Um, and uh, he used to get all over us when we were in our throwing program. He says, you always, he says, what is your job? It's to hit targets. He says, so why would you from the first pitch through the first 25 pitches of loosening up, just be putting your head down, not throwing at anything, just trying to get it back to your partner? He goes, you always throw to a target. It's a habit. It's a habit of hitting targets, and that's what pitchers have to do. And I remember he was a stickler on that. He used to even, on Pepper, they don't play Pepper anymore, but in Pepper, he used to make the pitchers play Pepper, and we had to turn and put our shoulder toward the hitter in Pepper and throw the ball to him because it was more like we'd pitch in a game and how the proper way of throwing a baseball. Those were old-school stuff, but he – he was a pit bull on that stuff. And he really helped a lot of guys because he made you do it the right way. He didn't let you slip up. I, I mean, I, I, once I got to the big leagues, I would purposely, especially when we were on the road, I would purposely get to ballparks early. Um, for instance, I would get there early when I knew it was, um, maybe it was a day or two after Kurt Schilling had pitched. And I would get in the dugout and I would watch him and he'd go out there early and do his throwing program, maybe prior to doing a bullpen. And I would watch him and he would do his long toss and he would use the cutout of the grass, how the mowers would cut uh, lines in the grass. And he would get his target out there a couple hundred feet away and he would line himself and have his target on one of those cutout lines of the, what the mower had cut in the grass and he'd be at the other end and he would want to throw and propel the ball down that line with his body and then eventually his arm and hand to that target. So he's assuring himself he's working on his delivery and his direction and all that feel that he has encompassed over all the, those years to direct that ball from two, 300 feet to a target. And he knows it wasn't by accident. It was because he trained his body on to obey what his brain wanted it to do. So I would purposely do go out there and, and try to watch people that were extremely successful and why they were extremely successful. So just little things like that. I, I, I would really pay attention to. Well, you know, I think you hit it on the head because you're not the only friend I have that's a coach. And coaches have something in, you know, in common, and that is we're always striving to see something better, see the best, how they do it. We observe those things. We learn those things. We didn't just come up with the stuff. You know, oh, God, no. we come up with the idea. We learned everything from somebody else. And then we might have tweaked it with something we saw through our career that might be beneficial, 
but everything comes from observation. And that's another thing. You don't see players observe things. I used to make my starting pitchers watch the other starting pitcher of the rotation throw his side. The, there's so much other things to do with conditioning and all these things. Everybody's on their own program. And to me, it even takes away from the chemistry of it. You know, uh, the, the way you learn is to watch. You know, I've always had to get on, you know, I taught it, I've, I've taught it in the minor leagues for years that during the game, don't just sit there like relaxing like you're a, like you're a spectator. Look and see what you can use, what you can use against uh, your opponent, the base runner, the hitter. What does he do? What are some of the things he does that you could take advantage of? You don't want to have to learn it after he hits a 500-foot bomb off of you. Um, you may have been able to learn it the day before when one of your teammates was pitching in the game. Yeah. Another, another example is whenever I'd go to Atlanta, um, uh, Leo would get his bullpen session. Leo Mazzoni would have his bullpen session. And his bullpen sessions weren't to see what kind of stuff that that starter had that particular day this, uh, on his side day. But he'd grab his starter. But here comes the other starters on that ball club, whether it was Avery doing his bullpen, and here comes Maddox, here comes Schmoltz, here comes Glavin, uh, maybe it was Nagel, I don't know who the other starter was, and they all would be in the bullpen observing, and it was always something that they shared knowledge with each other. Just knowing how they performed their bullpen sessions, it was all about feel. It was yeah. all about controlling their body, controlling the baseball. I learned that from the Orioles. Yeah. The Orioles, oh, they're both, they're, they're pitching staffs over the year. That's why they had one of the best pitching staffs for like 12, year, 12 years in a row. Um, of course, Palmer was part of all of them. But they, you know, they had Flanagan, you know, they had McDally. They were two different eras. Yeah. But they were all connected through Palmer. But they all did the same thing. They all watched each other's bullpens. They talked pitching. They tried to help each other during the game when they observed something that they saw you doing, uh, a hitter doing, you know, something you could take advantage of. They would help you in the dugout. That's being invested in your teammates, and that's having a good, good. That's having a good ball club. Yeah. See, that's, that, so it doesn't happen by accident. It it, it is something. Why, why do some organizations just have the ability to to have consistent uh, staffs year after year after year because they are investing not just individually but uh, the shareness sharing knowledge with each other. Um, you know, sometimes baseball will say, "Oh, look at those clicks uh, the Atlanta Braves have," where the starters during the game they're just hanging out and they're not hanging out with the rest of their teammates. Well, you know what? They're they're playing the game even though they're not in the game and they're sharing knowledge during the game, just as they share knowledge when somebody's doing a bullpen session. So this adds to team chemistry. This adds uh, the investment where it's shared. And you wonder why Atlanta Braves uh, have won. When I was coaching there in New York, they had won 14 in a row. Now they're now they've won the last five Eastern Division championships. So it's not an accident, Mark, that no. this continually happens in Atlanta. So this is now that's the model 
that a lot of pitching coaches should take, uh, you know, take no, uh, notice what is happening there and why. Obviously, they have talent. Sure. There's, there's, there's no substitute for having talent and athleticism. But it's awful coincidental that something like that continues to happen in the deep south in Georgia. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, David Wainwright took that to St. Louis, and they do that now. Yeah. And because he he learned that from the from the Braves guys when he broke in, and there's a reason that St. Louis has those kind of pitching staffs. And I think the pitching coach's last name is Maddox there, so I think a lot of those same tenants have gone to St. Louis every year now too. Yeah, it's so not it's, it's not by accident, Will. It, it is. You know, uh, uh, Mike Maddox, you know, he might not have been the pitcher that his brother was, but he did not, he had that, he had that, uh, that pitching coach gene and he's a brilliant man and he knows what's so important and he has the ability to teach these little things that, that, uh, go into the DNA of a, of a quality pitcher. You know, and that's, that's the disappointment in the game is that um, these things that are so obvious are not being continued in, in a lot of places and not being emphasized and as big and strong and as good as the athletically as these players are, if, if they were being taught, this game would be at a level that would be incredible to watch. And unfortunately, we're not seeing that. That's that's one of the things I think that a lot of us in our age group and and, and older, we you know, we just we lament that that it could be so much better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got a question for all three of you guys. I, I, I've got a question for all three. And I'm again, I'm I come to this show. I love the pitching show because I'm a hitter, and I learned so much on the way you guys bottle the answer and the, and the language you use. And I noticed something with with each of the three of you. Talking mechanics to a pitcher, um, and I talked to two pitching guys last night, same thing. It's not what you do. And I notice when you guys talk rhythm, balance, and timing, you use the word delivery. Is that is that intentional? And what's the connection between the two words and, and maybe the difference for our audience? I always tried to avoid the word mechanics. Mechanics, you know, we've all been to – uh, an auto mechanic, and boy, those are those are trips that nobody wants to make because they're going to change something in your car, uh, even though it may need it. Um, so I avoid the word mechanics. I use the word delivery. To me, delivery gives you that visualization of that athlete, him going through the motions of his own personal delivery to deliver a baseball not to throw a baseball but to deliver a baseball a delivery is a calculated movements to accomplish something to a specific target and that's why i never use the word mechanics to an athlete i love it. yeah well go ahead yeah i you know i always say bob is uh i'll be in rooms and i share like cookie cut deliveries and everybody throws from the stretch now with the same balance, let it go, balance, let it go. And I said, just go walk around the hall of fame and look at the videos of the different pitchers that had different deliveries. 
nothing about mechanics. They were all athletic pitchers who could make pitches and went out and competed, which was so much more than what is being taught now. Um, and it's not about uh, cookie cut mechanics. It's about, you know, you understanding you and going out and making pitches. So just to agree with uh, not, not using the word mechanics. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I listen to how you guys use the language of pitching and I think words are important and we have a young audience out there. Our audience goes all the way up to the front office and all of them can be educated on this. And I, I appreciate how you guys are thoughtful with your words. So I just wanted to point that out as a hitter. I, I pay attention to you guys. You're like counterintelligence for me. <laughs> um, another question, Bob, you know, you know, when you, when you found you couldn't pitch, um, you know, you became a, a coach re- really pretty quick, but you know, why did you become a, a pitching coach? Well, I, again, you and I, we, we figured things out for ourselves and why things are happening. What, what do I need to do to uh, be consistent making a certain pitch in a certain location? I always wanted to know why. And so when my playing career ended and it ended in um, Jackson, Mississippi, when I tried making my comeback, um, uh, Davey Johnson was the manager in, in AA in Jackson that year. And uh, the farm director was there and they said, you know, you gave it every everything you had to try to come back, but um, things have fallen short and you would have to agree that you're not the pitcher you used to be. And but then they said, but we know you can offer a lot to this organization. We'd love for you to be a pitching coach that never entered my mind, to be honest. But that seed was planted and boy, did it it planted. It was fertilized and it was it was reaped. It grew within seconds. And so I could see uh, just another opportunity for me to help somebody. And uh, now this this opens up another uh, another door as far as okay, I, I I've taken care of myself and I learned how to do this on my own. Now I have to learn how to deal with ten, twelve different personalities, ten different uh, uh, abilities and and uh, points of athleticism and deliveries and so. Now my journey really began, and fortunately for me, that's when uh, uh, I, I, I leaned heavily on people that I trusted, whether it was Al Jackson, uh, whether it was Mel Stottlemyre, who I was fortunate to be around for a number of years. And if, if I would follow them in spring training, and if they, they were walking and if they stopped real fast, I bumped into the back of them. That's how much uh, that I just followed them like a puppy because I wanted to watch how they interacted with players, what words they used, when they interjected uh, delivery, when they interjected uh, things about athleticism, how they talked to the player, how they treated them as people first and athletes second, um, just to get to know the other person, uh, get to know about their families, uh, get to know about issues in their daily life. So um, it, it, is, it is a journey that once you put on that coach's hat, 
you have other responsibilities other than yourself. So that's how my journey began as, as a pitching coach. And fortunately for me, it, it did open up uh, uh, avenues to stay in the game in this wonderful game and, and be able to teach um, and uh, watch somebody else maybe advance, maybe uh, fulfill a dream. Maybe their dream was only going to get to double A, but so be it. Not everybody's going to get to the big league level, but you have to invest that time with that guy who is maybe not a prospect, but you have to treat him like he's a prospect. And so th- that's that was the satisfaction I got out of coaching. Well, you know, you know, it's funny because you and I share some things because we, you know, we're the same era and uh, we were big league pitching coaches for a long time. And we also worked in the minor leagues. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think you'll agree, you know, coaching in the big leagues is different than coaching in the developmental years of, of a player. I mean, sure, in today's game, we're still doing we're doing more teaching now than ever at the major league level, just because of of the amount of players that are that are going up and down. But but I remember, you know, you were such a you know, you were so invested in your work ethic and your communication skills at the big league level were were beyond reproach. And you were always unbelievably prepared. And I remember when I took over the director of pitching operations for the Rockies and uh, you had, you had left being the big league pitching coach. And I, I talked to you, I talked to Dan O'Dowd and uh, I remember you telling me, Mark, I would love to work with the young guys. I would really love to work with the young guys. If you could have a, if there's a spot for me, well, that was a no brainer because you were like the perfect guy and it was it was funny to me because you transformed yourself uh, to even a different type of pitching coach when you went to the work with the young guys. I mean, the things you paid attention to and the, how you talked to them in a fatherly, grandfatherly manner. Um, you, you know, you won their confidence, you won their attention, um, and you. And I think one of the the main pluses that you had was that you didn't make it like the most difficult thing in the world to do. And I think that's a sign of a great coach is that he gets guys to work on what they need to work on, pay attention to what they need to pay attention to, but also know that there's hard work and the results are repetition over and over to get that job done. And you did it in a way to where this isn't going to be the the easiest thing you do, but it's not the hardest thing either. Um, well, on, on that note right there, um, um, I did go down to the minor leagues and I did uh, specifically ask to, to really work with the three lowest classifications. And invariably, the, the pitching coach who, who, who would happen to be at those affiliates, you know, he would introduce me and, and you know, they all knew that I was the former big league pitching coach and I had been in the big leagues a long time. So, yeah, I would get their initial um, respect. And so respect is very important. But I would tell each and every pitcher there, okay, I've gained your respect, but there's one thing I have to earn. I have to earn in your mind and in your eyes is trust. 
make me earn your trust because this is your career. I want to invest as much of my knowledge to you without overloading the circuits for your benefit. And when you trust me, if somebody really trusts somebody, you can agree to disagree. So when you can get an athlete and a coach to disagree on things, you know your relationship is strong. It doesn't have to be an adversarial type relationship, but one where you talk about things and there might be points of contention that you just don't quite agree on. That's a really good relationship if you if you can get to a point with your athlete like that. So um, those those are those are just things that I, I wanted to to convey to to the player that that was my only goal. That was my only goal. You know, Bob, those are all unbelievably great points and. Uh, Mark hired me for my first pitching coach job, and I remember being at Biscayne College in spring training, and uh, I knew Cal Sr. and Earl was the manager, and I said hello to them. They came over to do their their morning work at the college, and uh, Cal Sr. said, he said, you know, you're one of the most important coaches in the organization. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the guys at the lowest levels, they get the guys when they come in the door. And, you know, it was so important. And I think that's one of the lost things in our in our thing that those guys should be actually paid the most amount of money. Because if you have the entry-level coaches, entry level coaches teaching the Oriole way or the Mets way or the Braves way, uh, you know, the Braves, you know, Bobby Dews for years was a, a yeah. Bruce Canton, those kind of guys. That's that's why those organizations were so good. George Kissel with the Cardinals. Uh, yeah. we, we talk about Johnny Goral, what he did with the Indians. Um, you know, and, and you talk about trust. Ray Miller was my minor league pitching coordinator. I had a great relationship with when I signed. And when I got hired, I talked to him and he talked about, you know, well, you pitched, you understand a lot of things, but you have to have a relationship of trust with your pitchers. And yeah. I think you that's, know. that's why I always did well as a pitching coach, because they knew I was genuine and I was there to try to help them be better. Uh, another thing that I learned along the way when I was with the Rockies, uh, they hired this guy uh, just strictly for the coaches. And it was a class on how to ask questions. Hmm. How to ask questions. Well, that seems like a topic. Like, well, what good is that going to do with the athlete? Well, let me tell you, it, 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 it alerted me on, on things that maybe how I could improve my interaction with the player on how to ask specific questions. Right. For example, for example, a right-hander. And he's working on something and he's having trouble getting the ball down and away to his glove hand side. So away, down and away to a a right-handed hitter. And he would struggle with it and struggle with it and maybe hit it one or two times out of 10. And he would get frustrated. And I, and I would then start asking pertinent questions. He said, okay, um, 
what side of the plate do you feel that you could hit vast majority of the time? Oh, my right, my arm side, I can hit that any time. And then I'd ask, okay, what about your glove hand side? He says, no, nah, I really struggle with that. I said, then I would ask him, why do you think that is? Why do you think you have trouble going to that glove hand side? And so it gets that the, 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 those brain impulses thinking that it's nothing. What, what, what physically am I not doing well in order to get that ball? And invariably, you say, I don't know. I, I can't figure it out. So this kind of opens the door for things that you've noticed this. It's not like it just happened and that you haven't noticed that inability to make that pitch. You've wanted to approach him, but now this is the perfect opportunity. And so you start incorporating things as far as you first do it with balance, rhythm, and timing, saying, because we're neglecting this, we're really going off in a direction that you really don't want to go when you want to hit this target. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that, 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 would, that would make it more difficult. So now you have teaching moments because you ask pertinent questions on things that he needs to do better. And you came up with certain solutions that aren't mechanical. They come back to that balance, rhythm, and timing. Whenever you can go back to that and avoid that, that, that M word that you take to the auto mechanic, if you can avoid that word, and stay an athlete, you're going to get that, that, that pitcher to now be able to replicate something on a consistent basis. And then you're going to see him have a new toy, and then he's going to run with it. You know, those, yeah. are, those are fantastic, uh, fantastic statements. You know, it, it does have to do how you ask questions. You know, it's like... I used to use the, uh, I used to ask guys, okay, I want you to show me where's the best area you could throw your fastball the easiest, the easiest. Where's, uh, where's the trouble area? If you had to throw your fastball a different part of the strike zone, where would that be? And I could find out kind of where, where his path was and how his mind worked. And if he had a two-seamer and he says, oh, I can throw strikes down arm side anytime I want, but I have problems getting getting the ball to glove side, I'd know where we needed to work. Yeah. But, you know, so many guys go, hey, throw me five balls to the to your glove side, throw me five balls to your arm side. No, you got to identify what's the easier areas because, you know, the easiest area to throw a fastball to is the area you're adjusting from all the time. So – you want to get back to that area real quick when you're doing side work and stuff, the area that's the easiest because you lock into that, that's usually tied directly to your balance rhythm and timing, your arm slot, everything. And then you make adjustments off of that. But if you don't have your, what I call your focal point area, your best area locked in, you're going to struggle all over the strike zone. Right, right. Yeah, I you know I'll I'll share a story, um, Mark, and you know both kids. They pitched in Cleveland. Uh, I had Charlie Nagy and Rudy Cianez, two different beasts in a ball. And you know at that time I'm a younger pitching coach, and I'm 
flexing my uh, my my mechanical knowledge and different things. And Charlie was a more a better athlete and a little bit more cerebral. Rudy was not uh, a great athlete and not real cerebral. And Charlie's having a great year and Rudy's struggling. And one day Rudy throws about ten straight pitches up and into a right hander. And I go, and I'm talking about, and he goes, yo, well, did you ever hear a kiss? And I go, what? He goes, keep it simple, stupid. He goes, <laughs> what, do you, what do you want me to do? I said, how about if you throw a damn pitch down in the strike zone to the outer part of the plate? And he goes, okay. So he throws one, it gets down into the zone. And then I had remembered hearing somebody say, you know, sometimes make a focal adjustment, you know, for guys who are struggling. Your your eyes tell your mind and your mind tells your body how to make an adjustment. Now, all of a sudden, I tell Jesse Levis to sit low and away. Rudy throws like 10 straight pitches down in the strike zone. I go, oh, my gosh. So, like, you also have to know your players and you have to understand what level of their learning is, too. So, uh, I mean, and that's where trust and communication all come in to such a big, big thing in coaching guys. Well, I, you know, we talked, we hit on feel earlier than this, you know, and this just came across my mind, all the pitchers that I've had, you know, you can't really be a major league pitcher in the rotation for any length of time without really good feel. That's just all part of the package. You know, you'll have some guys, maybe even like Rudy, that don't, they have tremendous arm speed and they may not command the ball as good. They may have a few more walks per nine than a starter would have, but their responsibility is only an inning or so. Right. You know, it's not like facing a whole lineup. But when you're facing going through an entire lineup multiple times, starting pitchers have to have feel. And, and I always see this. When I scouted, I used to have go see different organizations and I would hear them talk about their prospects and I would watch a pitcher and I'm going, boy, he's got tremendous stuff, but he has no feel. And they're counting on him to be a number one starter right. in their organization down the road. And I'm going, it isn't going to happen. No. Because his mentality won't let it happen either. No. No. You know, and you have to set your players up for their success. Exactly. Where, where, what they're capable of doing uh, and, and building their confidence and that they're in the best place for their career to be their best. Uh, a great example that I came across when I was in the Met organization at AAA was uh, Jason Isringhausen. And he was a, a starter throughout the minor leagues. Great ability. I mean, explosive fastball, uh, absolute hammer of a curveball. Uh, didn't come up with his cutter yet. That was later on in his career. Yeah. But he, he was like he was like Usain Bolt. He was a sprinter. Um, you, you put him in a mile run, and he's he, he's gonna he's gone after a half a lap. So uh, this was this was a sprinter in a marathon guy's body. So um, he finally found his niche out of the bullpen. And so he was able to to be explosive for a very, very short period of time, not career-wise, but as far as inning-wise. So, it, Will, you're absolutely right. It, it, and, Mark, you're absolutely right. It's finding the correct role for this particular pitcher 
regardless of what you want or envision out of him, you have to individually get inside of this guy and find out what is yeah. his best role for not yeah. only for him, but for your organization. Yeah. Right. There's only been a few guys like Ecker, uh, Eckersley and uh, Smoltz. Yeah. They could do both. have done both. But, you know, I used to always say this to guys and I know everybody's talk. They get into stuff for the closer. Just everybody wants big, big stuff. It's like you're going to rush at them and finish the game really quick. And I used to laugh. I used to say, you know, you take most guys with good feel that are number three starters, they'd probably be premier closers. And they go, what do you mean? He doesn't have that good of stuff. And I go, it doesn't matter. He commands four pitches. Can you have to face a guy that commands four pitches out of the bullpen for one inning? Yeah, that's, that's every bit or harder than a guy that's got 98 in his pocket with a big breaking ball, but you're not sure he's going to come in and throw strikes or whether he's going to leave it elevated in the hitting zone too often. Right. I mean, I mean, history has shown us that. I mean, you, you've mentioned Eckersley. I mean, we had one in uh, in Colorado with Houston Street. Uh, he he was dominant with the A's. He had a couple of dominating years for the Rockies. Um, the uh, Trevor Hoffman uh, early in his career, he was he had power in his fastball. But I would say the vast majority of his successful years as a closer were because of his devastating ability to to be unpredictable and right. the ability to throw something other than his fastball in fastball counts. And he always had in the back of every hitter's mind that that change up the hits. But he was able to work both corners with with his fastball, whether it's four seamer, two seamer, big old curveball. He had a he had a slider slash cutter, but then he had that devastating changeup. So history has shown that success comes in a lot of packages. And that person that you know what you're going to get from day to day. Right. You don't know what you're going to get stuff wise from that overpowering pitcher who relies strictly on power. You know, that's the that's what's in vogue right now is power. But when that pitcher doesn't have that that particular power fastball and he's not locating that high fastball where it needs to be and he throws those high fastballs lower, those balls are going to go out a lot faster than they're going in. I mean, the Rockies Rockies had a left-hander when I was there in uh, Brian Fuentes. Uh, Funky, funky delivery. But boy, I I didn't have to know his spin rate uh, but I knew this four-seamer, you get it belt and above, hitters were not going to hit it. And, uh, I mean, uh, there were a number of guys that you knew. But closers? Watching Mariano Rivera as, you know, naturally when he came up, he threw 96, 97 late cutters. But as he went on, he was still dominant at 91 to 93 cutters. And then he developed a two-seamer, and then he started throwing change-ups. And he had eight hands. So, you know, <laughs> you know, he's still a, a, a hard, hard at-bat. That's all you can say. Right. I mean, he, he yes, evolved also. I mean, he started using his arm side not only for his two-seamer, yeah. 
but then he would front door his cutter door to the right hander. Yeah, exactly. So this was and a guy. This was a guy who sensed that maybe he might be losing miles per hour, but this guy could hit a gnat's behind That's right. any pitch that he threw, and then he opened up his game where now he was dangerous on both sides of the plate. And Kenley Jansen has kind of evolved into that, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he's got deception. He cuts the ball. He runs up the four seamers. He runs cutters up high, down low. He goes in and out, up and down. Um, it's it To me, those are lessons in pitching that everybody should be having a notebook taking notes when these guys. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you get them out as long as you get them out. That's right. That's uh, well. I think we can wrap it up. Um, I wanted to give one here quote. I think it'll it'll uh, give you a kick. Um, you know, Mark Twain's got a lot of really good quotes, and uh, he's got one that says, uh, "There are lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics." <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of uh, that kind of sets up the the end of our show because I think it's really. Yeah really important for people to understand that there's not always one way to do things. I love that. That's going to go on the Twitter post right next to uh, Bob Gibson. So we can talk about Bob's first win as a major leaguer, Bob Gibson picture next to Mark Twain beginning and end of this guys. This is phenomenal. Um, I learned as much on the show as I think our audience does, especially with the pitching and without a doubt, we gave our audience their money's worth today, built better baseball IQs, and Bob, as we told you, you'll, you'll now be viral in 42 countries right here. We're listened to uh, by people all over the world right now, from grassroots all the way to front offices. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, we really appreciate you. I know we talked about the, the technical issues getting on early, and you said, I, this is the, the one time, but I'm going to hold you to coming back. We'd love to have you back on, a, on another occasion, uh, if your, your time permits. Great and, job, Bob. Oh, Make yeah. sure you stay on after this. Yeah, yeah stay on afterwards, Bob. Yep, and Mark and Will definitely hit your targets today. Did a great job, as usual, bringing out the best in our guests. And to our audience, uh, episode 56 in the books, A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. It's their fifth installment. Can't wait for number six. You guys keep delivering every week. Thanks, guys. Have a good rest of the week and look forward to next time. Thank you, guys.